So what I want to do today is to build on what we've been doing in the last couple uh, talks. And I, I really believe what, what I try to do is, is helpful uh, because, uh, remember, the whole theme of our talks is spirituality. And so uh, we're not talking about just somebody being a moral person, although that in itself is a, is a good achievement. Uh, we're talking about how do you go beyond being a moral person into this very intimate relationship, uh, not only with God, but with everyone around us as, as uh, children of God and creation of God. And so we started in the first lecture emphasizing the idea that, that in reality, God creates out of love. And because God creates out of love, uh, what he creates has the very spark of God within him or her. And therefore, you know, I kept, keep stressing this, and I'll keep on doing that, that we really uh, have part of God within us. And I'm not saying this in a metaphorical way. Uh, you, I can show you all the different writers who've said that. Uh, but what that also means is that you and I, as I've said often already, can only be fulfilled as children of God by loving. That the more we love, uh, the more we fulfill what God intended, and the, more, and the more natural we are who we're intended to be. We are really intended to be lovers. Uh, and as you know, Jesus on the cross saying, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. Uh, that is a very uh, amazing kind of challenge. But if you read some of the history of some of the saints, that's exactly what they did. No matter what happened, uh, love was the, the dominating principle. And so that is at the basis of what we're trying to do here in talking about spirituality. Everything comes back to the whole idea of love and the idea of returning to God in love. We also now, in the last uh, two lectures, uh, talked about how the spiritual writers understood the human person. And again, in their way of thinking, obviously they're influenced by the culture around them, but they're, all, you know, they're also trying to deal with what they think is, is, is the way human beings are. And in the Syriac view, human beings are always intended to have bodies. They'll always have, a, that's what makes them human. You and I are not angels. Uh, I mean that literally. Uh, angels are a different kind of being. Uh, angels, uh, you know, we see the pictures and all that, and that's nice, and we even have TV shows about angels appearing and all that, and they're just nice guys and gals, you know. But they're, the whole idea of angel is beyond you and me. An angel has a 10,000 IQ, whatever. So uh, Aquinas would agree with me, St. Thomas. You and I are human, we have bodies, and that makes us different. It makes us different from the angels, and makes us different from the animals. So our body is what distinguishes us from both angels and animals. But because of that, in a way, you, you and I have a greater challenge, because we have to keep together our spiritual side and our physical side, because that's who we are. We can never be pure spirits. Uh, we're always going to be with our bodies, and our bodies are great. You know, angels can't hug, as I tell people. 
Uh, angels can't enjoy peanut butter pie. Uh, so uh, we are who we are, and that's what God wants. That's why in the, in the Syriac world, there's no doubt that somehow at the judgment day, we will have our physical side with us. Uh, and the first example is Jesus himself. Jesus who rose from the dead. Notice when he rose from the dead. He wasn't in normal space and time, was he? He came in and out of buildings. He, he, ate, a, you know, he ate a piece of a fish one time uh, when he appeared to the disciples. But, you know, as I said to you before, the scriptures never tell us he spent the night anywhere. He was on, you know, he was on a warp drive. He was in wormholes. I don't know. But he was both physical and spiritual. The resurrected Jesus was physical and spiritual. And the same thing is going to happen to you and me. At least that's what our Syriac writers believed coming out of the scriptures. That I will raise you up on the last day. And so I don't know how that works, but my point is, from the Syriac point of view, we are identified not just by having a mind and a will and an intellect, but we have an imagination, we have an artistic sense, we have our bodies. So the question in the spiritual life is how can we make that work? How can we make it work that we have our soul, our intellect, we have our body. We also have that higher faculty I've talked about, our spirit. How do we make it work that each one of these are in harmony? And that's what the spiritual life is all about. How do we get ourselves in order so that one is liberated from the other? How do we liberate our intellect from our body? Now, if you spend your whole time just taking care of your body... Your intellect doesn't have much to work with. And so, you know, if you go from spa to spa, uh, you know, if, if your 90% of your conscious life has to do with your body, then your intellect doesn't have much room, you know. And now, of course, we're getting into a, a situation where people don't read anymore. Uh, you know, they don't even read anymore. We don't use our intellects anymore. We just go by sensations. And so, how can we function as human beings with the great gift of mind and will we have and our great imagination if our body is what occupies us all the time. And so that's why it's so important to find that harmony between body and soul. But the spiritual writers were also saying, your intellect can get in the way with your, with your spirit. Now some people are curious about everything. And so they spend their whole life studying everything. And now, of course, with Google and the Internet, you can even go further than that. I remember when I was teaching college early on, I had some guys who spent 10 years in, in, as undergrads because they're interested in everything, but they don't want to get a job, you know. And so uh, on, on the, even our Syriac writers are saying, hey, Philosophy is important, science is important, success in business is important, but you can overdo it. You can focus so much on a lot of things and never get to your spirit. And so part of the spiritual life and achieving the spiritual life 
is how do we free our spirit from our mind, from our intellect, to allow our spirit, that higher part of us that wants to be communing with God, how do we achieve that goal? And that's why, you know, when we study the early church writers, uh, that's why all these people went out into the desert. Uh, You and I can't imitate that. I mean, we might be tempted once in a while, at least for three days. But uh, they went out into the desert in order to clear everything off so they can reach this kind of spiritual state. And so, uh, so this is the, this is where the Syriac approach comes from. How do we achieve the freedom of our spirit, the freedom of our intellect, and the freedom from the drag that our bodies are sometimes upon us? And that's the whole idea of the spiritual life. Now, near the end of the last talk, I mentioned that when you study someone like a person named Evagrius, who was not a Syriac writer, he was a Greek writer. But he influenced, influenced a lot of the Syriac writers because he was so good at what he did. With Evagrius, the whole idea here is to achieve a state of apatheia. A Greek word, as I said, doesn't mean apathy, but means you're freed from the temptations of your body. They're still there but they don't get to you. Uh, you still like a lot of things, and you're attracted to a lot of things, but it's under control. Apatheia means you, you realize your body has its own way, but you have your own focus, and you're able to free yourself from that you know, temptation. You know. It's not good to have that second piece of pie. Uh, It's not good to spend three days in a row shopping on something you could have done in one day. Uh, So uh, we have control of the temptations of our body, our passions. For example, some people have a short fuse. They get angry at everything. They're mad at the world. Uh, But you can control. Control not just because you're you're at a point where you say, I'm not going to do it, I'm not going to do it. But you're at a point where your, your mind is so focused that you say, hey, look, I want to hit this guy in the mouth, but it doesn't bother me. It doesn't bother me. Uh, that, that's what apatheia is. You're not bothered. You know it's there. You allow it to take place, but you're not going to give in to it. Now, this is where we ended up the last time, <clears throat> trying to achieve apatheia so that we can achieve uh, agape, which is love. Now, I mentioned this last time, but I didn't get into it. Evagrius is famous for one thing that everybody has heard about, uh, the seven capital sins. Uh, But only he came up with eight. And I have to distinguish that for you. So for him, he doesn't call them the seven capital sins. Uh, He talks about what he what he considers these thoughts that come to your mind, uh, generated by your body, which can lead you astray. Uh, In Greek, it's the word logizmoi. In other words, uh, where St. Anthony in the desert used to talk about the devil tempting him in person uh, when he was in his his little hut, you know, the the devil would come at him as as an animal, a lion, a tiger, 
uh, the devil would send him all these beautiful babes and, uh, you know, and he'd be trying to hide or the, or the devil would beat up on him and so forth. Uh, Evagrius gets more psychological and he talks about seven or eight themes, seven or eight classifications of, that tend to come at us. And the question is, how do we deal with these? So he tries to identify these eight approaches. And we know the numbering of the seven capital sins, but I want to give you a little more uh, insight into this. Uh, first of all, we have the sin of gluttony. Now, when you think of gluttony, right away you think of eating too much. But Evagrius is talking to hermits and monks. Uh, these people had one loaf of bread a day, you know, that was it. The, so what he's talking about here is you're tempted not to fast. In other words, don't discipline your body. Uh, even during Lent, you know, pick the easiest thing to do, give up during Lent. Uh, and so for him, the temptation to the monk or the hermit is, hey, remember, you want to keep your health. So fasting is not good for your health. Uh, so eat, eat as much as you can so that you'll have a, a healthy life. So that's the way it comes at you, you know, at your health, not at overeating. Uh, secondly, the temptation to lust, impurity. But the way the Syriac writers talk about it, uh, they think that the whole idea of lust is the, the desire or the need to be around bodies. In other words, you're, you're, you're anxious to have some kind of interaction with bodies. And so for them, their advice is, if that's your inclination, uh, try to spend more time alone. <laughs> uh, don't go to places where you're rubbing against somebody else. Uh, so uh, this is the kind of idea here. The third one is, is avarice. Uh, avarice, you know, the idea that you want to accumulate things. And here the temptation is, hey, you know, uh, I got to take care of my future. Uh, am I going to have enough money? Am I going to have enough uh opportunities. Uh, uh, you know, famine can come, uh, disasters can come. So uh, it's not a matter of just having a 401k or a decent retirement plan, but it's a matter of saying, I got to keep piling up the money, uh, piling up the goods uh, to the point where you just enjoy doing that. In other words, and the reason you give is, hey, look, something may go wrong, so you can't, you can't have too much money. Uh, but in the meantime, you're not doing anything else for yourself or anybody else. And so that's the temptation here regarding avarice. The next one is a little more subtle. We use the word envy. The word in Greek, lupe, is, means sadness. So the person who is envious is the person who keeps looking at somebody else and keeps saying, why don't I have what they have? And how come they're so lucky and I'm not? And so uh, you, you're just not content with yourself. You're not content with your life. Uh, you're almost obsessed. Uh, obsessed with, uh, you know, somehow uh, that you, you need something more. 
You need something more. Or envy can also be the idea that uh, you forget the old times. The times when you were single, going to a beer bash every other night. The time when you were having all this good times and now you're married, you're trapped. Uh, you can't have fun anymore. Uh, and so uh, uh, all of these things can be acting on us. And that's part of what envy is. Now, uh, don't get mad at me. I really think envy is a real problem with our culture. I'm talking about Lebanese culture. We're always comparing ourselves with somebody else. And we're always saying, why can't we be like them? You know, uh, And it's, it's really a trap. It's really a trap. Uh, one thing I learned as a priest over the last 58 years or whatever is that and I've seen people in all the different walks of life. Everybody in this room, you're luckier than you think you are. You don't know what other people go through. Uh, you think, you know, they're way beyond you. We're all in the same boat. Uh, the happiest person on earth is the one who's happy with his or her own life, is grateful for what they have. They don't look around. Uh, so envy. Anger. You know, the interesting thing about these spiritual writers, anger is one of the main things they focus on, especially if you're living in community, you know, in a monastery or a, a nunnery or whatever. Uh, it seems that anger uh, is a real vulnerability. And the whole basis of anger is either an actual or perceived wrongdoing. You're mad at somebody else because you either think they did something to you when they didn't, or they did something which they probably made a mistake, but you can't let go of it. And so when they describe anger among the monks, they say it gets to a point where the monk can't pray anymore. He's so angry, he can't look at the face of the other person. He stops eating. He gets emaciated. And so uh, the whole idea of anger here is we're dealing with a part of ourselves, as you know from your own studies. It's good to be angry at, a, at, a pers- you know, at something you're fighting against. You're fighting against vices. You're fighting against evil. Uh, it's good to have that kind of passion holy anger, but it's not good when you direct it at other human beings. And so uh, anger becomes this, this, this uh, idea that, that really rips you apart. It's not good for your health. The other one here that you probably hardly ever hear about is akedia, a Greek word, A-C-E-D-I-A, akedia, uh, in the old days, when they mentioned about the seven sins, they talked about sloth or sloth, laziness. It has nothing to do with being lazy. The way they understood akedia is more the idea of boredom. You're bored with being good. You're bored with following the life that you're living. Uh, you get to a point, you know, that... Uh, uh, that you look at the clock every five minutes and hope the day goes by quickie, quickly. Uh, in fact, the, the spiritual writers talked about the noonday demon, uh, taking it from the Psalms. 
Uh, in other words, uh, you know, halfway through the day, you've been working all day, you're looking up and saying, gee, uh, why can't this end? Uh, now, uh, as I said, the temptation for you and me is we're trying to be good people and we see all these people around us who are getting away with murder. And so we begin to question, you know, why am I so good? You know, why am I doing this? You know, why don't I just take the easy road out? And so that's the kind of thing of Akedia. Now, in the contemporary world, some people have written about Akedia, but they write about it in terms of depression. Now, certainly depression can be something of that nature. But what they're talking about here is not clinical depression, but they're talking about people who, because of, our again, our humanity, our human nature, uh, tend to get bored and tend to f- try to figure out how am I going to get away from this boredom. Now, the remedy they, they advise that you and I can't relate to too well is to start chanting the Psalms. Uh, you know, uh, maybe a better remedy might be to sing your favorite song. Uh, I don't know, but, uh, uh, but the point is that uh, it is something we have to safeguard against. Now, I've gone through six of these, but now we have for Evagrius and Philoxenus, who copied a Syriac writer, the distinction between pride and vainglory. See, when you look up the seven capital sins on Google, it won't mention vainglory. But for them, there's a big difference between pride and vainglory. Vainglory is when you think you've done a good job with your life or with what you've achieved, but you want praise for it. In other words, you want people to praise you. And, and so you're... But because you want people to praise you, you're nice to them when you're not that nice. And you try to, you know, uh, get on their good side so they'll say something good about you. And the spiritual writers point out that sometimes people who want to live the spiritual life think they've done a great job when they haven't. And so they say, hey, look, I, I've been praying, I've been fasting, and hey, I guess I'm pretty good. Well, the point is, maybe you're not that good, but you'd like to think you are. And so the whole idea of vainglory is you need other people to praise you. you you're looking for someone, to, some others, uh, to uh, think how great you are. That can happen to all of us. I mean, uh, I've, I've, I knew priests sometime who were lousy preachers, uh, but their parishioners tell them, oh, that's a beautiful sermon. And they say, yeah, I'm pretty good. And they're not. Uh, but they've, they've convinced themselves. And so uh, vainglory can be a very erosive kind of temptation. But then finally we get to pride. Now with vainglory, you're looking for others to praise you. With pride, you believe you're superior to others. That anybody who doesn't praise you is a fool. Uh, that you don't need anybody. You don't even need God. That you, you've achieved what you've achieved on your own. And so with pride, uh, you have gone into an alternate reality. 
uh, and where you're speaking only to yourself, your own echo chamber. And so for them, pride uh, for the monk or for the hermit will probably lead to some kind of mental collapse because you can't live too long that way uh, without uh, driving yourself mad. So th those are the temptations that they speak about. And so I present them here again for you and me. Uh, are we guilty of giving in to this kind of temptations? Uh, because if we do, it's going to be very difficult to continue progressing in our spiritual life. Now, the other thing that I mentioned at the end of the last talk is that all of us need discernment. Whenever we're tempted by a lot of things or we're asked to do certain things in our life or we, we decide to do certain things, we all need a spiritual advisor. Uh, we need somebody who can guide us because sometimes, you know, we're so involved in things that we don't see where, what is good and what is not so good. As I mentioned at the end of the last lecture, one of the key ideas of discernment is when you're tempted or when you think somebody's guiding you on the right way, the, the best way you, you can deal with that is what is the result of that temptation? Do you feel more loving, more generous, more kind? Uh, do you feel like, you know, love is coming out of your own being? You're more, you're more uh, you know, attuned to other things? Or do you feel cold? Do you feel elitist? Uh, uh, is your attitude more divisive? And so that's an easy way to discern. But those, that's certainly one of the, the main ideas. The other thing that they mention is reading scripture. But reading scripture, not to find some nugget of some secret revelation, uh, but reading scripture to see how God's plan has been working out over the last 10,000 years and see how we are part of that plan and even our own individual lives. And that will help us to stay on the right track. Uh, now I want to turn to a positive side. <laughs> and that is a question of prayer. And here, when we talk about prayer in the spiritual life, uh, there, there's different levels of prayer, obviously. Uh, all of us are called to pray. Jesus himself gave us a prayer to pray. So I want to distinguish here between prayer in general and prayer when we talk about contemplative prayers, the spiritual prayer that, that we try to strive for. So what is prayer all about? Well, one of the interesting things here is uh, a Syriac writer, the earliest one we really know about, uh, a person named Ephrahat. And Ephrahat has an interesting uh, essay about prayer. Uh, the main, uh, good thing about this one is that up until Ephrahat, people talked about the Lord's Prayer, and that was about it. He talks about private prayer. And the, the scriptural passage he uses about it is the one where Jesus, remember in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 6, I think it is, uh, where Jesus says, when you pray, don't make a big deal about it, but go into your room and close the door and, and pray. 
So Ephrahad takes that idea from the gospel, but he pushes it a little further. And he says, well, what if you're living out in the desert? You don't have a room. You don't have a door. And so his answer is, really what we're talking about here is when you pray privately. And the door here is your mouth. And your room is your soul. And therefore, uh, he's saying, uh, when you pray, uh, you become a temple where Christ dwells. And so the whole idea of prayer here is that you become the temple. Uh, in fact, Ephraim says, uh, our heart becomes the altar and Christ is our bridegroom uh, and the soul is the bride. And so the whole idea of prayer here is really communion with God. Uh, so private prayer primarily is reaching that situation, that state where you and God are in the same place. And with the aid of scripture and the aid of your meditating, uh, you want to be part of that presence of God. And so to put it in another way, prayer really is the consciousness of the presence of God. And in fact, Isaac of Nineveh says, there's a lot of ways that, that you are praying. And not just, you know, saying words, but he says, reading the scriptures, chanting the Psalms, reflecting on God. Uh, and so the whole idea here is that prayer is this idea of how do I connect with God. Now, the other argument that they make is that prayer for us Christians uh, substitutes for the sacrifices of the Old Testament. So remember in the Old Testament, when you read the, the Old Testament, uh, what do they do all the time? Offer a sacrifice. You know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, you name it. Uh, whenever they have an interaction with God, they offer a sacrifice. So what's the whole point of offering a sacrifice? You take something that's precious and you give it to God. And usually you burn it up, you know. But what is the whole idea of, of sacrifice? You reach out to God, God reaches out to you. You give to God, he receives. And so here they're saying, in the New Testament, when you pray, you are reaching out to God, not by offering an animal, but by offering the purity of your intention. That you're reaching out to God because you want to connect to him without blushing, without being ashamed. I mean, how can you reach out to God if you're sinning like a mile? In other words, uh, you can't pray in a sense if you're do at the same time you're hurting other people. And so the whole idea of prayer here is that you so purify your heart and your soul and your intentions and your actions so that you and God can be in the same place. And so that's why Ephrahat, for example, and Ephraim point out that the sacrifice of Abel was accepted, but not of Cain. Now, I don't know too much about Cain, but according to Ephrahat, uh, Cain didn't have the good intention. 
They didn't have a pure intention, where Abel did. And in the Old Testament, of course, your sacrifices only have value if they are pure sacrifices. Uh, remember, you know, when, uh, uh, you know, in the Old Testament, they always warned people, don't, if you're going to offer an animal to God, don't take one who's already got a club foot and, and, and sacrifice it to God. Uh, don't take an animal that nobody wants and give it to God. And so what is the whole key here? You give something precious, something pure to God. And so this is the idea of prayer. On the other hand, Ephrahad also says, uh, when you want to pray and somebody needs you, don't tell them, somebody knocks at your door, let's say, who's hungry, uh, don't tell them, uh, come back in an hour, i got to finish my prayer. Uh, but if somebody needs you, uh, then go and do what is needed, and that will be your prayer. And the same thing applies to the works of mercy. You know, feeding the hungry, uh, clothing the naked, and so forth is a prayer. So, what am I trying to do here? I'm trying to give a basic definition to prayer. And from my point of view, prayer basically is you and God in the same place, feeling comfortable to be in the presence of God because of your good intentions and the purity of your heart. And allowing that, that situation to, uh, you know, to enrich your own soul. Now, I mentioned this before. Uh, you know, when we studied catechism, we said there are four aspects of prayer. Praise, thanksgiving, penance, and petition. And those four can still apply. But those four should apply in that context. Uh, prayer should never be, as I said before, transactional. We should never say, I'm going to do this for you, God, if you do this for me. And if you don't, I'm not going to be with you anymore. You know. Uh, I used to tell stories when I was a kid. I never saw it happen that some of the older women, when they get mad at God, they turn the statue to the wall. You know, <laughs> uh, you know. Uh, or you know, I've, I, uh, it's a tragic thing that happens sometimes where somebody says, "I don't go to a church anymore because my child was dying and I prayed to God and nothing happened, so I've had it." Uh, the uh, uh, it's a sad situation. I, I can empathize with that. But prayer should not be transactional. Uh, we can discuss the problem of evil in a different context. Uh, and so the whole idea of prayer here is, is connecting. Uh, the whole idea of prayer here is that you're not alone. And uh, the uh, Isaac of Nineveh says for him, prayer ultimately is Abandoning, abandoning yourself to God's care. And uh, I want to read you a quotation from him here. It's, a, a, it's a, just a short prayer in a way. Here's a prayer from Isaac. Make me worthy to know you, my Lord, so that I may love you too. I do not desire the knowledge that involves distraction of the mind that comes from the application of learning Rather, make me worthy of that knowledge whereby the mind comes to praise you as it gazes upon you 
with that gaze which banishes from the mind the sensations of the world. Make me worthy to be raised above the imaginings which my own will gives birth to, so that I am impelled to gaze upon the bonds of the cross with a continuous gaze such as nature does not give, thus crucifying my mind, whose freedom has been rendered useless by its subjecting itself to impulse. Place in me the pure metal of your love, so that I may be removed from the world as I follow you. Stir in me the awareness of that humility of yours, wherein you lived in a world, having put on the raiment of, my, of your, our body, so that as I continuously recall it, I may accept with delight the humiliation of my own nature. So, this whole idea of the surrender to God uh, in your, your act of prayer. Let me just close here by making a few more comments about this purity of heart. Ephrahat says that purity of heart is uh, when there are no more sins that, you're, that are on your consciousness, especially sins against charity. Uh, that we cleanse our hearts uh, from all deceits. So purity of heart is when we get to that point where, uh, and, and the, the basis of that is that, that famous beatitude. Blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. Uh, that's probably my favorite beatitude, although I like the one about mercy and the one about peacemakers. The pure of heart shall see God. And, and, and this is what Ephrahat focuses on and some of the others. Um, and my idea of that is that when you're pure of heart, you see God in everything and in everyone. You're not at a loss for God. He's, he's there. Uh, because nothing else distracts you, nothing else diminishes you. Ephraim, Ephraim says, circumcise our hearts to become the bridal chamber where Christ as groom comes to dwell. Remember, uh, Jeremiah said, we're called not just to circumcise our bodies, but to circumcise our hearts. In other words, purify our hearts. And Isaac of Nineveh says that, uh, that we, we can reach a level where we gaze favorably on everything as God's point, from God's point of view. In other words, to get to the point where we see things the way God sees them. And he adds, if we reach that level, we will see everyone as good, even the ones who are sinners. And so we reach that point, as I say, and I, I think this is great, if God created everybody out of love unconditionally, then no matter how they sin, he still loves them. And so can we get to that level where our hearts are so pure, we're aware of the sins of others, but that's not what we look at. And so if we can do that, then we can reach this kind of purity of heart. So I'll stop there. <laughs>